We have been taking a journey last year through the biblical narrative and just spending a lot of time in the ancient Hebrew story and we made it to the end of David's story, King David, uh, right before Thanksgiving. We talked about David, we talked about the book of Psalms that he wrote a lot of the songs in there. And then we put all of that on pause for the holiday season. And now we're getting ready to enter a new year and get back into our story And next week will be a very important week as we kind of uh, build all of it together and talk about where we're going from here. And next week will be an important groundwork uh, and conversation as we enter 2024. I hope you won't miss that. But um, just looking at the big picture together. But uh, we finished a, a section before the holidays. And today we're on a holiday weekend. It's kind of a transition weekend for us. And to be honest, it's a perfect time to tell the story we're going to tell today because the story is kind of a transition story. It doesn't have a lot of heavy punch to it as far as application. I love to give application that you can take home and put to work in your life. And there is a little we're going to give, but a lot of the application we find is, is things we've said all year already. So the story is a bit of that space that we, we need to cover because it's a transition story but we're in a transition holiday weekend, so it's the perfect time. So we, we finish with David's story, and today we're going to see David actually die and his son, one of his sons, take his throne. So follow with me as we jump in together. We're starting a new book of the Bible today as well. We've been in First and Second Samuel. Today we begin with First Kings, and that's where our story takes place, beginning in First Kings chapter 1 and verse 1. Ready? Here goes. King David was now very old, and no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep warm. Now, this is a disease that they didn't have the the, the medical expertise and understanding to diagnose more formally back then. People who studied it in in the years and decades uh, beyond and the centuries beyond his time have opined about what David was sick with, what disease he had. And it's, um, it's, um, there's a lot of theories out there. Some of them are pretty, like, gruesome. I mean, there's a, a, a case where people believe he may have had a form of gonorrhea or some kind, which would make sense with all the people around him. But the more sub- subtle and likely mainstream thoughts is that David had, um, first of all, a form of hypothermia that could have been exacerbated by other ailments. But hypothermia, where you just could not stay warm. And some of you know what that's like, where you just, you're either hot all the time or you're cold all the time. Nothing warms you up. And David just could not be warm. And no matter how many blankets they put on him, it wouldn't do the job. So a form of hypothermia as a disease. And then um, also osteoporosis, which makes sense not only in this condition, but when you look back at, at some of the songs that David wrote in Psalms, he talks a lot about Things like his bones are consumed and are wasting away. And so he probably had osteoporosis as well. And he's just getting old and very frail. And he's had quite a life as a king. And he's near the end. And so I love reading about the story. Growing up, I grew up with the King James translation. And the King James makes everything sound funny when you read it. You know, it just does to me sometimes. The old English. Like they would say, someone is old and well-stricken in years. Well, that sounds about right. And it says about David, it explains in this verse here in the King James that David had what, it said that he gat no heat. I'm quoting it, literally. It says, David gat 
no heat. What a weird way of saying that. So apparently that's their best medical diagnosis. David had the GAT no heat disease. That's the formal name for his afflictions, the gat no heat disease, okay? And so it says in verse 2, his advisors told him, let us find a young virgin to wait on you and to look after you, my Lord. She will lie in your arms and keep you warm. That's kind of weird. But let's just go ahead and talk about it anyhow. Um, So first of all, Trying to give them body heat, skin on skin, does make sense if you can't stay warm. I can see them trying to think of that as a cure for the heat, for the heat part. But why does it have to be a young, beautiful virgin? Why can't it just be, I don't know, a uh, big, ugly, hairy dude or something? I don't know. I mean, but for some, but he's the king. He gets to pick up the litter. So if he's going to have somebody lay there and minister to him, apparently he wants it to be a young, beautiful woman. And of course, the king in those days would only, always have beautiful people around them. The palaces were full of the best. And so apparently David, his advisors say, the only known course of treatment we have for you is to bring this beautiful young virgin in the room and have her attend to your needs and also to lie there and keep you warm the body heat. Now, now let me say something to you men in the room. Men, do not, years from now, come to your wife and say, honey, I have this terrible disease that um, is, is a, a terrible ailment called the Gatineau heat disease. And it's biblical. Look it up, honey. I promise you it's biblical. And, and so study the cure for it because I want to, don't, don't, don't try that. Because if you try that, she's liable to come back to you and say, I looked it up and it says here, you're going to die. Okay, that's, that's how that's going to go down. Okay, no luck for you. But David, of course, this was his approach as the king. They were going to try to keep him warm. So they searched throughout the land of Israel for a beautiful girl, and they found Abishag from Shunem who, and brought her to the king. Poor Abishag. Can I just feel bad for her for a minute here? Like, you know, they find her like, hey, you're very beautiful. Well, thank you. Hey, personal question. Are you a virgin? Well, yes, I'm waiting for my marriage someday. Wonderful. Then you have a special opportunity. You know, it's like you know, when you're good at your job at work, it's so they give you more work to do. It's like, thanks a lot. You know, they're like, congratulations, Abishag. You've been promoted. Uh, and so she's brought to the palace under these circumstances. I hope they paid her really well for the trouble because David's an old, crusty, old, dying king. This is not a fun gig, I'm sure. It says in verse 4, The girl was very beautiful, and she looked after the king and took care of him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. And that last part means that he didn't, mess, that, you know, didn't go there, that, there with her, but that may be because he would not do it because he was a... You know, he thought uh, as a man of principle. But then again, he's been with a lot of wives and a lot of concubines through the years since taken a few for himself. I think the more likely story here is that he could not than that he would not. But you never know. It could be either way. But he, he, either way, he was old and frail and it didn't go there, but it was very close and personal nonetheless. Now, why do we bring that up? Because she's important for today's story and you need to know her background. So there it is. Verse 5 says this, About that time, King David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. I find it very peculiar that about the time that Abishag is brought into his father, he's like, hmm, it's good to be the king. I'll make myself to be the king. Now, Adonijah here, he is um, one of David's many sons from many different women. That's why it mentions his mother's name specifically, because David had a lot of kids from a lot of different moms. So uh, Adonijah thought to himself, I want to be the next king. Now here's the problem with that. David, as we're going to see in a moment, had already promised the throne to go to his son Solomon, the the son of, of Bathsheba, one of his wives named Bathsheba. We've met her before. We'll discuss her momentarily. 
but he promised Solomon to be the next king. And here's Adonijah saying, I think I want to be the next king. So dad's frail, dad's old. He's going to put a plan in place to snag the kingdom while dad is on his deathbed pretty much. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Basically an advanced team, like a campaign. You say, why would you campaign? This is not a presidential election, but here's why. Because even in a kingdom, you wanted the people's support because there was always a threat to your throne. And if the nation was behind you, it solidified you more. So he's spreading the word and he's, he's uh, trying to say, hey, you know, look at me. I'll be the next king and, and, and get the public sentiment behind him. And so we continue reading. It says, Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? David never brought him into the room and said, hey, I might be sick, but I hear you're trying to make yourself king. What are you doing? That's Solomon's role. I already promised it to him. Dad said nothing and let Adonijah carry on like this. The pro that was David's M.O. towards the end of his life, wasn't it? We've seen the stories when David, his kids grew up, he didn't oftentimes corral them in their bad behavior. Amnon raped his half-sister. He did nothing. Absalom killed his brother for doing so. He did nothing. Absalom was in exile for a while. David did nothing. He came back home, formed a rebellion against his dad and created civil war. Dad just retreated for a while before finally defending himself. And so I understand part of the trouble is, is that when your kids grow up, mom and dad, as we know this, you, they're making their own choices now. You can't. You, have no, you only have influence if, if you have a relationship and they let you have it. So part of it is David can't control what his adult kids do on one sense. But on the other sense, he's the king and they're royal members of the family. He has a right to step up and say, hey, as a king, we can't allow that. And I'm going to deal with that. But he often didn't. And so here's Adonijah running around planning to be the next king, consolidating attention his way. And it says here that Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. Now, the fact that he was handsome is not a surprise. Like, all of David's kids are described as handsome or beautiful. Probably he married beautiful women, and David was a good-looking guy, probably had great genetics, and this is just Camelot here, you know. I mean, that's just how it was. But I think what they're saying there is that he looked kingly. Like, people in the public would say, ooh, that guy looks the part. He look, he's the kind of person I want to look to as a public figure as our next king. And Adonijah, it says, was born after Absalom. Now I want to remind you, because this is part of the story here. Adonijah is the fourth born son of King David, but is the, he's the oldest surviving son. The first born son was Amnon. He, was, he did something terrible and was murdered by his half-brother. He's gone. The third one, we'll skip the second, the third one was Absalom. He formed a rebellion against his dad and died in the conflict. The second one's name was Daniel, or Chiliab in certain translations. Daniel was, um, it's, he's not mentioned in adulthood, which implies that he probably died before adulthood, which happened a lot in ancient times with people and health. So David's older kids are gone. Adonijah, the fourth son, is now the oldest surviving son of David's dozens and dozens of kids. So in his mind, he thinks, I should be the next in line for the throne. Of course, dad promised it to Solomon, but Solomon's like number 11 or something like that down the line. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm the oldest survivor. So, so here's, he's making plans to be the king. It says in verse number 7 that Adonijah took Joab, the son of Zeriah, and Abiathar, the priest, into his confidence, and they agreed to help him become king, even though that's not David's plan. 
Now, these men are very important. Who is Joab? We've learned about Joab for a while now. Joab was David's buddy and helper through all of David's years. When David was a fugitive as a young man, Joab was one of his mighty men. In fact, Joab became the leader of David's mighty men. And when David became the king, Joab became the commander of David's army. And, and, and largely, he helped David succeed. I mean, he fought wars. He, he did a lot of good stuff to help David succeed. But a couple times, he went rogue and killed somebody who was a rival and a threat to his own position, even if that hurt David's wishes. But largely, he was part of David's success. But David was kind of tired of him because of those rogue moments as well. And now that David's old and dying, Joab is also older, but he's still strong. And he, where is he going to go? The next king's not going to use him. In fact, David's already moved to a younger uh, version of Joab. He has a man named Benaiah, who's his right-armed man now. And Joab is feeling displaced. His, his journey is over. So Joab hears Adonijah make a deal with him. Here's what Adonijah says. Joab, your star is fading. I could be overlooked. I'm the next one. I'll tell you what. You have a lot of influence, Joab. You have a lot of influence with the soldiers and the military. They respect you. You go ahead and back me as the next king and help me have clout. And I'll give you a position and so we can both boost each other up and have a future together. And Joab is like, let's do it because there's no future probably with Solomon. I'm old, but if you'll give me a position, I'll help you, you help me, let's do it. Same with Abiathar the priest who came along and, and, and it was loyal to David. Abiathar, by the way, was the young man whose entire family was butchered when King Saul killed a whole town of priests for the thought that they helped David when he was trying to kill David. Remember that? And Abiathar ran for his life and was the only one to escape from his family. And David and him grew up together. David, they were close, and his sons, Abiathar's son Jonathan, was helpful to David during his the rebellion by Absalom. But now Abiathar says, you know, I'm going to get behind Adonijah as the future king because he's going to give me a job and I'll help each other out. Well, Adonijah's consolidating power and what he does next is very big. He throws a party outside of Jerusalem and he's going to basically let this be the launching pad to say, hey, you've been kind of getting the hint, but from here, it's time for me to ascend to the throne soon. My dad's old and frail. I'm going to prepare to take over the throne in the near future. So he throws a big feast outside of Jerusalem with sheep and they butcher animals and they eat. And while they're doing that, um, he invites some other special guests. Verse number 9. He invited all of his brothers, the other sons of King David, and all the royal officials of Judah. So everyone's there. The royalty's there. The royal officials are there. Basically, it's a statement that says, I'm the next thing and your presence here says you're behind me. And bringing his brothers to his party was a very bold statement because in ancient times, people who were trying to come to power, especially when they had to fight for their, the power because it wasn't given to them, would oftentimes kill their rivals, including their own siblings. That was very common back then. And so Adonijah, by bringing his brothers to the party, says, guys, I'm the oldest brother here. You get behind me and I'll be good to you. We'll be good to each other. You help me solidify power. I'll take care of you. The royal officials are there. It's getting very real right now. Because even the royal officials are like, what are we going to do? David's bedridden pretty much with this young woman looking after him. He's not hardly leading. Let's get behind Adonijah. And the party's growing. 
But look, who he did not invite to the party is as important as who he did invite to the party. Look at the next verse with me. It says, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah the king's bodyguard or his brother Solomon. Woo-hoo. Nathan was the spiritual advisor to David who told him, you can't build the temple. God wants your son to do it. Who told David, you're sinning with Uriah. You're wrong for that. Nathan was David's confidant. Benaiah was David's new Joab. He was not invited. And then one of David's children, only one of his sons was left off. David, uh, Adonijah invites all his brothers, but he does not invite Solomon. Now that's a big statement. And in case you don't understand how big that is, let me explain it to you. Not inviting Solomon was more than just a middle school party where you're the only one left off the guest list and you feel rejected and bad. That's not what's going on here. That would be bad enough. No one likes that. This is something worse. Leaving Solomon off the guest list was basically saying he is a threat to my plans. He's a threat to my throne. By leaving him off the party, what he was saying was he's a threat and once I become the king, I will eliminate him. This was, in no uncertain terms, a death warrant for Solomon eventually. And maybe for Nathan and all the others who were not invited as well. So Nathan the prophet goes to Solomon's mama. He goes to Bathsheba and says, we got to do something quicker. We're all in big trouble because the party's moving a different direction and we are left off the boat, which means they're probably going to be executed. Now I want to remind you, I know that we were here, but I want to remind you in case you forget or weren't here, who Bathsheba is. Bathsheba, when she was a younger woman, was married to a man named Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, and he was sent to war with all the other soldiers one day, and she's at home praying for his safe return, minding her own business. She goes out to her own courtyard, fenced-in, closed-in courtyard, and she's bathing one night like she would do, but King David is on the nearby palace roof peeping at her, and he's like, I want that. So he sends his men over, and they bring her, and she has no choice. These men come to her house and bring her to the palace and bring her into King David's bedroom, and he lies with her. And impregnates her. What's she gonna, it's a terrible story. And then she goes home and just shocked at the, at, the, uh, at the terrible thing that just happened to her. And then she gets pregnant from it and she tells David, what are we going to do? I, my husband's coming back from war. And you got me pregnant when you took me into your palace. And so, so David tries to cover it up and it doesn't work. So eventually he has Uriah placed in a spot in battle where he is basically death by proxy. He just gets killed in battle. And David gets rid of that problem and then takes the grieving widow Bathsheba, who's heartbroken and pregnant now. Her life's been turned upside down by David's actions. And he brings her into his harem of wives. And in doing so, there could be a very bad relationship there, you would think, although she has to play nice, except for the fact that it turns out that their child was born and was very sick as an infant. Eventually the child died, and the strangest thing happened while the child was sick and then eventually died. David and Bathsheba, caring for and grieving over that child, grew close together. And afterwards they comforted each other, and she became pregnant again and gave birth to Solomon. And it says the Lord loved him. And Solomon was a precious kid, and and David promised her he will be the next king. But all these years later, Solomon's not invited to the Kai, his brother, older brother's party, to take over the kingdom, which means he's an enemy of the state soon to be. And so Nathan says to Bathsheba, we're in trouble if we don't figure this out right now. Let's go to your husband and let's one at a time blitz him and make him realize this is a scary deal. 
have him do something about it. So Bathsheba goes to see David first. And it says in chapter 1, verse 15, so Bathsheba went into the king's bedroom. That's where he stayed most of the time. He's in bad health. She goes into the king's bedroom. He was very old now. And Abishag, the young girl, is taking care of him. And how awkward for Bathsheba to show up into the bedroom of her husband as one of his wives and not to be able to approach him like a husband and say, hey, buddy, what's, what's going on? Do the right thing. She can't go that way. She's got to come like a subject, like a servant, hoping in desperation for her life. And when she walks into the room, it's not just her husband there. It's, the, it's another woman there. Because she's older and she's, you know, just one of the wives now. She's not the, not the young thing David was bringing along a long time ago. She walks in and there's Abishag with him. This year's model was Abishag, you know. So she walks in and what's she going to do? Well, here's what she does. It's terrible. It says Bathsheba bowed down before the king. Can you imagine? This is his wife. But she gets down in the ground in that room and she's bowing before her husband because she's, she has no other recourse or authority. All she can do is plead for her life. And by bowing down before David, she's bowing down in the presence of Abishag, the other girl. Can you imagine how awkward this would be? But she's got to have help. So she bows down and, and before the king. And, and he says to her, what can I do for you? And she explains to him what's going on. She says, I, I thought you promised me Solomon would be the next king. But right now your son Adonijah is taking over the kingdom behind your back. Is that what you want? Because if I, we're going to be criminals. We're going to be in trouble. She actually says, we will be enemies of the state and we'll be put to death if you don't help us right now. And while she's talking to him, someone arrives and tells David that Nathan the prophet wanted to see him. So she's sent out of the room. Nathan the prophet comes in the room and he says, David, did you make plans for Adonijah to be the king and not tell us? Because we missed the memo because there's a whole thing going on right now. Is, is something changed? And David suddenly realizes in his old age, he realizes what's up. And David's been around the block. He's seen people grab for power. He's seen mutinies. He's seen rebellions before. And David says, i got to do something fast. So he says in verse number 28, call Bathsheba. So she came back in and she stood before the king and the king repeated his vow to her. As surely as the Lord lives, who has rescued me from every danger, your son Solomon will be the next king and will sit on my throne this very day, just as I vowed to you before the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, I'm not going to wait till I die for him to take over on a, on a, on a will that they're going to read in front of the probate. I'm going to give him the throne today while I'm still alive, and we're going to get ahead of this growing problem. So today he's the king. Then Bathsheba, once again, she bowed down with her face to the ground before the king and before anyone else in the room. And she exclaimed, may my Lord King David live forever. Now that's just an expression they used back then. May you live forever would be like, have a nice day, you know. May my Lord the King live forever. Basically what she meant was, don't go dying on me until you finish anointing uh, Solomon to be the king, you know. I don't know. But anyhow, she just wishes him the best. And then she leaves. And sure enough, David is true to his word. He goes out, he sends a word immediately for his royal people to bring, uh, to bring Solomon and alert the city to come out and watch as he put him on the king's mule and rode him out of town. And they went into the tabernacle, the sacred tent, and they took the holy anointing olive oil and brought it out to where Solomon was at near the walls of Jerusalem. 
and they anointed him with oil as the next king in front of all the people. And they put the crown on his head and the robe on his back and the scepter in his hand and rode him back through a parade in the city as the people cheered. And they put him on the throne of David that very day. And it says in verse 40 that all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and so noisy that the earth shook with the sound. Well, when it's that noisy that the earth is shaking with the sound, guess who was throwing a party nearby Jerusalem at the time who heard the noise? That noise right there. That's the noise that they heard right there. They're like, something's going on. There's a rule when your phone goes off in church, by the way, that you owe the pastor a pizza. So um, I appreciate that. I like pepperoni from Aurelio's, if you can help it. Anyhow, um, thank you very much. Um, so, uh, meanwhile, while, David, while Solomon's being anointed king and everyone's celebrating, the um, party outside the city walls is Adonijah having a feast to take over the throne with all the important people. And they hear the sound. It says in verse number 41 that Adonijah and his guests heard the celebrating and the shouting as they were finishing their banquet. And when Joab heard the sound of the ram's horn, he asked, what's going on? Why is the city in such an uproar? They're like, uh-oh, that sounds official. What's going on? And while he was still speaking, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, arrived. Come in, Adonijah said to him, for you're a good man. Look, you're with your dad, Abiathar, who's on my side. You're his son. You're a good man. You must have good news. To which Jonathan said, not at all. Our Lord King David just anointed and declared Solomon to be the king. And he tells the whole story of the festivities going on in Jerusalem right then. And everyone in that room knows, uh-oh, we are acting in rebellion against King David, which is before I thought we'd get away with it. Now we're in defiance of the new king. This is not the place to be. And so it says in verse number 49, then all of Adonijah's guests jumped up in panic from the banquet table and quickly scattered. They're like, we were never here. You never saw us. Erased the cameras and the video footage. We're gone. And they took off for the hills. Meanwhile, Adonijah, he was afraid of Solomon. So he rushed into the city. He rushed into Jerusalem to the sacred tent. The sacred tent's the name for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent that they used. They moved into Jerusalem during David's reign. Uh, he rushed to the sacred tent and he grabbed a hold of the horns of the altar. Word soon reached Solomon that Adonijah had seized the horns of the altar in fear and that he was pleading, let King Solomon swear today that he will not kill me. Can we read between the lines a little bit here? What he was basically saying was, let King Solomon promise today that he will not do to me what I was planning to do to him. Let King Solomon let me live even though I would have not let him live and treated him like he was an enemy of the state and a criminal. Let him not do to me what I could have done to him had I gotten my way, but he got the kingdom. Promise me he will not kill me. Verse 52, Solomon replied, if he proves himself to be loyal, not a hair of his head, not a hair in his head will be touched. But if he makes trouble, he will die. In other words, he is, I will be merciful because he's begging, but here's the thing. He is on thin ice. You ever been on thin ice before? You know what? He's on thin ice. 
So King Solomon summoned Adonijah and they brought him down from the altar and he came and he bowed respectfully before King Solomon who dismissed him saying, go on home. Very nice. Because if the roles were reversed, Solomon would not be sitting there. But Solomon showed him some mercy for now. Well, David is about to die and David gives some final instructions to Solomon. And I want to just brag on David real quick because David, he had that really bad part of his life that we talked about earlier. And it was ugly, and he paid a dear price for that, by the way. And he confessed it, he repented of it, he accepted the consequences, whatever God had, and he faced the music, he wrote about it, he taught the nation what he did, he wrote a song of repentance, and he faced the music. But other than that one bad section, David was an amazing king. He did a lot to move the kingdom forward. He brought the worship of God into Jerusalem. He wrote songs to God. He made the tabernacle front and center. After his fall, he made a great finish to his life. And he has been preparing his whole life for his son to take over one day and succeed after him. That's what great leaders do. I want you to succeed after me. So he, he prepared the kingdom for Solomon's reign once he was gone. And he gave Solomon some last instructions, like, for example, hey, there are some people who are good to me. I want you to take care of them. And there are some people who were bad to me. I want you to take care of them. Some people to take care of, and some people to take care of, okay? It's on you now. And then what happens next is 1 Kings 2, verse 10. It says, then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. It's such a quick statement that I just want to, Take a moment for it because it's like, it's over. David's done. It's just this uh, unspectacular statement of the end of a, of a, we've spent weeks on David. Look, I have slowed down more in this sermon series to discuss David than anybody else because I'm fascinated by the guy in his story. We have, we're going to have to speed up a little bit after the story, after we get past David. But we've slowed down. We've spent a lot of time on David, but all of a sudden, then he died. That's where all of us go one day. At some point, we're just the, the, the dashes on the tombstone between our two dates. And David's life was over. All he leaves behind now is a legacy. It says about his legacy, verse 11, that David had reigned over Israel for 40 years. Seven of them were in Hebron, the center city of the tribe of Judah, where he reigned over only Judah. And then the other 33 years, he reigned in Jerusalem, which is the border of Judah and Benjamin, where he reigned over all Israel for 40 years. And Solomon became the king and sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established because his dad had prepared for it to flourish and fought the battles and solidified their, their strength in his lifetime. And Solomon was set up nicely. And I love to tell you the story ends there and it moves into a nice peaceful reign, but there's a couple loose ends that need to be tied up. Let's tie them up now. First one's Adonijah. Remember Adonijah, the brother who tried to take over? He doesn't go away. He keeps dancing on his thin ice. Check out what happens next. One day, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, came to see Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Can you imagine being the guy audacious enough to go to the mother of the man who you try to take the kingdom from and have executed and show to his mom and say, hey, how are we doing? Want some coffee? I mean, seriously, just this whole approach is weird. And she's like weird by it. Have you come with peaceful intentions? She asked him. Oh, yes. He said, I come in peace. In fact, I have a favor to ask of you. Well, that's bold. You're going to ask Solomon, who tried to take the kingdom from his mama, for a favor. She's like, okay, what is it? He said, and this is very observational here. He said, as you know, the kingdom was rightfully mine. And all Israel wanted me to be the next king. Really? 
So that's, a, that's one interpretation. Rightfully mine because I'm the oldest surviving son, or rightfully Solomon's because David promised it to him. Well, potato, potato, you can just pick, pick the one that makes, it works for you, you know. And then the, the nation all wanted me. Well, didn't the nation all celebrate when Solomon became king that made the whole city shake with joy? But let's not remember that. Let's remember the people that were for you and ignore the ones that were for him. It's kind of like politics and people today, right? Like, my side's always right and their side's always wrong and, and we always win or they cheated. And you know, here's, you know, here's, here's Adonisha. It was rightfully mine and the people all wanted me, but they didn't get their way. You know, it's just crazy. And he's telling this to the king's mom, which is weird. What, what, was, she, what was she supposed to say? He continues, he says, but the tables were turned and the kingdom went to my brother instead for it is the way the Lord wanted it. At least he admits that. At least he says, you know, I didn't get what I wanted, but it was God's will. That's better than most of us can say when we don't get our way, right? It was the Lord's will. So now I have one favor to ask of you. In other words, he says, in light of all that terrible story I just repeated to you, where I should be the king, I have a favor to do one thing for me since I lost so much. Please don't turn me down. He's putting pressure on her, making her feel bad. What is it, she asked. Here's the request, ready? He replied, speak to King Solomon on my behalf, for I know he will do anything that you request, because you're his mama. Ask him to let me marry Abishag, the girl from Shunem. Oh, the girl that was on the scene as soon as you wanted to become the king. I see. She must have really been a looker. He's like, I don't know. I, I tried to become the king, but then I didn't get that. But at least give me the consolation. At least give me Abishag. You know, because you know, she's the king. You know, he's not, he, king's dead. He don't need her anymore. I'll take her. What a weird request. And it's not just a request for the pretty girl, although it was. It was a request for, for a, a, a sense of entitlement and power. We're going to see that in just a moment here. It's a, it's a malicious request in a lot of ways. So, all right, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. And this is a cool verse. I love this verse. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak in Adonijah's behalf. Are you with me? The king rose from his throne to meet her. And he bowed down before her. Wow. In other words, she had to come all her, this is a validation moment for Bathsheba. All her life, she's lived in a man's world at a man's mercy. King comes into this power and takes her from her husband and does what he can because he's the king. She's been ripped out of her whole life at other people's request. Even in, in, in these last few, these verses that we've been reading earlier, she's in front of her husband as an old man and the girl that's with him now begging for her, for her life. And here she is, all this time later, and she comes into the new throne and her son's the king. And she, and she doesn't bow. He gets off his throne and he sees her and he bows down before her. In fact, it goes on and says this. When he sat on his throne again, the king ordered that a throne be brought out for his mother. And she sat on his right hand. He said, Mama, you don't bow to anyone anymore. You've done that your whole life. And now she has a, man, a son on the throne who honors her and bows before her and says, you are to be honored. What a payoff for her after all she's been through in this moment. Anyhow, now for the awkward part. She says, I have one small request to make of you, she said. I hope you won't turn me down. What is it, my mother? 
you know I won't refuse you. <laughs> well, you're ready. Then let your brother Adonijah marry Abishag, the girl from Shunem, she replied. Oh, when she said that, I think Solomon's face changed his colors and his blood pressure went up because he knew what was being asked of him. In fact, let's read it together. How can you possibly ask me to give Abishag to Adonijah, King Solomon demanded? You might as well ask me to give him the kingdom. You know that he's my older brother and that he has Abiathar the priest and Job the son of Zariah on his side. Here's what he's saying that you need to understand about the whole story. He's saying, Adonijah tried to steal the throne on the pretense that he's the oldest child, which gave him some merit, and it didn't work out, but he's not giving up hope yet. There's still people who think he's the rightful heir. He still has powerful people on his side to this moment, and he wants to have the, 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 the concubines and people of the, who belong to the king were always passed down to the new king. That was since King Saul did the same thing with David. I mean, it just, it just happened that way. And so that, that, therefore, Abishag would go to, to, to Solomon, if anybody. And by saying, give me Abishag, it would add more legitimacy to Adonijah's claim to the throne and his perception as the rightful king in the town. And Solomon is very upset. Very upset. He's supposed to just give him the kingdom. He's mad that this guy went to his mom to try to work this out behind his back. Verse 23, then King Solomon made a vow before the Lord. May God strike me and even kill me if Adonijah has not sealed his fate with this request. The Lord has confirmed me and placed me on the throne of my father David. He's established my dynasty as he promised. So as surely as the Lord lives, Adonijah will die this very day. He's like, this guy, he, <laughs> the ice broke. Okay, so Adonijah is sitting at home, maybe waiting for Solomon's people to show up with a gift of the beautiful girl. They showed up all right, but not with a girl. They showed up with a death warrant. And that was the end of Adonijah. Well, now Solomon realizes that he's got to do something pretty quickly because his time, he's got people around him that are trouble. So in 2 Kings 2.28, it says that Joab... Joab's another problem person. Joab had not joined Absalom's rebellion earlier, but he had joined Adonijah's rebellion. So when Joab, who backed the wrong horse just now, when, when Joab heard about Adonijah's death, he ran to the sacred tent of the Lord. He ran to the tabernacle himself, and he grabbed a hold of the horns of the altar, just like Adonijah did earlier when he pleaded for mercy and found some, until he blew it. So as Joab runs to the tabernacle and grabs a hold of the altar, when this was reported to King Solomon, he sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, to execute him. He says, just go, go finish him off. He's been a problem. It's time to be done with Joab because obviously the kingdom is not as secure as I wish it was. This guy was trouble for my dad at times, and now he's been trouble for me. So Benaiah went to the sacred tent of the Lord and said to Joab, the king orders you to come out. In other words, come out and die like a man. But Joab's like, no, I'll die right here. Okay. So Benaiah goes back to the king and says, look, Job said he ain't, he ain't coming out of the tabernacle. Do as he said, the king replied. Kill him there beside the altar and bury him. This will remove the guilt of Job's, Joab's senseless murders from me and my father's family. Because again, he had done some bad things along the way, as well as being a very good general to David. Just finish him off right there. So they did. He goes into the tabernacle, kills him there, takes his body out. They bury him. The end of Joab. And then, we're not going to read this part on the screen, but then Solomon calls Abiathar the priest and says, Abiathar, Adonijah rebelled, he's dead now. Joab is a problem, he's dead now. You were part of the rebellion. 
but I'm not going to kill you because you're a priest. And you've been with my dad. You've been through a lot of trauma when your family got killed as a young man, and you've been through a lot, and you've been by my dad's side. But here's the deal. You're off the, you're off the job. You're out of the priesthood. Go back to your family's property and finish the rest of your life doing something different. And you and Jonathan are out of here. And, and this was a Bible prophecy being fulfilled because Abiathar was the last surviving descendant of Eli. Remember back in Eli and Samuel's day when they, God said they was going to take the, the family of Eli away from the priesthood? This was the final fulfillment of that prophecy. And, and Abiathar was sent home to live the rest of his life. And, and what Saul, Saul was just solidifying the kingdom from all the loose ends. But there is one more story that's less about Solomon and more about David. One more Yahoo to take care of, and that was Shimei. Remember Shimei? Shimei was the one that when David was being rebelled years earlier against Absalom, rebelled against David, and David left the royal city with his family in tears and humiliation and heartache over his son's rebellion. As he walked away to his uncertain fate, Shimei comes out of the woodwork in the land of Benjamin and mocks him and says, good, you deserve this. One of those guys who doesn't tell you what they think until you're down and then says, aha, I don't think you're down, I'm going to kick you. So they, how I really feel about you. You're losing, you're out, you're no longer the king and I hate you anyhow. Ha ha, glad it's happening to you. Threw stones at him and his family. And David let him go. But when David came back to the throne successfully somehow, Shimei was like, oh no, I blew it. So he gave him a grovel in front of David and said, let me live. And David was nice enough to say, fine, just I won't kill you, just get out of my face. But all these years later, David never forgot it. So on his deathbed, he's like, remember Shimei? I said I wouldn't kill him, Solomon, but you do something about him. <laughs> so Solomon is now the king, and he decides to do something about Shimei. Verse 36, then the king sent for Shimei and told him, you build a house here in Jerusalem and live there. But don't step outside the city or go anywhere else. You're basically under house arrest. I'm not going to do anything to you, but you're, the parole terms are you don't leave Jerusalem. You don't go back to where you came from. You stay right here in the city, and you don't leave. In fact, he says this next. He says, on the day you so much as cross the Kidron Valley, you'll surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. What he's saying to him is, you know, I, can't, I won't kill you for what you, David, you did to my dad that he, didn't, he gave you mercy for. But you, here's the terms. If you break these terms, you will die. It's up to you. And Shimei knows he could be in trouble, so he's all agreeable. Shimei replied, your sentence is fair. I'll do whatever my lord the king commands. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for a long time. But you know how it is when you're not allowed to go someplace. Where do you want to go? The place you can't go. He feels trapped as the years go on. And eventually, two of Shimei's servants run away. They leave. And they go to a different place to get away from him. He's like, I want my servants back. So he goes off, leaves Jerusalem, finds them, and brings them back to his house and says, you work for me. The problem was David had, I'm sorry, Solomon had never stopped having people watching Shimei's house. And they saw him leave and they saw him return. And so the king sent for Shimei and demanded, did not I make you swear by the Lord and warn you not to go anywhere else or you would surely die? And you replied, the sentence is fair. I'll do as you say then why haven't you kept your oath to the Lord and obeyed my command? The king also said to Shimei, you certainly remember all the wicked things you did to my father, David. May the Lord now bring that evil on your own head. What he's basically saying is, I'm not going to kill you for that, but I am. You, know, you gave me a different reason, but that's what this is all about. And Shimei is done for. And after he got rid of all these loose ends, these threats to his throne, his brother trying to go, all the, the supporters of the rebellion, once he got all of that figured out, 
The story ends in verse 46 where it says, Now the kingdom was firmly in Solomon's grip. Which is a big deal as a young king to have a true consensus behind you. And Solomon has now firmly gotten control of the kingdom. Gotten rid of the problems around it. And now he's firmly recognized as the king going forward. And that's where we're going to stop today. Now, before we go home, we're going to close with just one song today. And we'll be out of here in a little bit. Before we do... I want to give you just a little application. I know it's a transition story. It's a transition holiday weekend. But we're setting up the stage for where we go next. Here's what I want to say for you today. And it's something we've said to you in certain ways over and over again for the past few weeks, for the past few months. And that is simply this. To live with the end in mind. To think about the things you choose to do and where that path will take you. To live with the end in mind. You know, who under, you know who understood this? Solomon. I mean, Solomon saw all of this. Solomon would later write much of the book of Proverbs where he would talk about this very idea and he would say things like how a prudent person, a person who's prudent is a person who's standing up straight. A prudent person looks down the path and sees where it leads and makes the right path and avoids the wrong one. Because what tends to happen to us is we tend in life to hunch over and think about how does this decision affect me today? If I do this today, how will I want to do this right now? That's what's best for me this moment. I don't want to do this even though I should. I do want to do that though I shouldn't. And we look at the immediate comforts and the immediate desires of our hearts and we so seldom think about where those decisions will take us later. And Solomon would teach to straighten up your back and take the long look and say, where will this path lead me? Where, if I go down that choice, go down that road, where will it take me? Do I want to end up there? Do I end up there or there or there? Where do I want to go? And if I don't want to go someplace, I don't want to make decisions today that will take me where I don't want to go. And I want to make decisions today, though they are hard, that will take me where I do want to go. So live with the end in mind, because all of us have an end date, like we saw David earlier. One day we will all stand before our maker, our creator. All of us will. You will and I will. And your creator, your maker, your God, he loves you unconditionally. You are loved. But we will give account. We will give account that day. And when we face that, we, do, we want to hear, do we want to have regrets about wasting our lives selfishly or for our own self-interest against other people or, 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 or what we've squandered or done wrong? Or do I look back and say, I'm, I'm thankful? We've all done things good and bad, but do I look back and say, my life has largely been marked by making choices that I'm happy with? What do you want that day to be? And your God who loves you will see him face to face. And I've told this before so many times, I'll say it again. As, I get, as I've gone through ministry for years, I learned a long time ago, that's all I need. Because you, you, you can't always be successful in man's eyes. You can't make everyone like you. But all I need, folks, all I need is for one day to hear God say to me, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm well pleased. If I have that, who needs the rest? Live with the end in mind. Not just in, in front of God someday. With the end of your life, when you get to the end of your life, do you want to look back and say, I'm glad. You can't control what happens to you. We can't control things, but I'm glad for the choices I've made. Or you can get to the end and say, I really regret the way I chose to prioritize things that did not, were not right or did not matter. Not just the end of our life, our, our legacy, what people who knew us would say about our life and what we chose to do and how we chose to live. Our family, our friends, but on top of that, just a year down the road, a month down the road, 10 years down the road, do you want to look back down the path and say, how did I end up here? 
Why did I make choices that brought me down this road? I didn't want to be down this road. I'm saying today, don't just look at what's right in front of you and go by that. Lift up your back and take a long look. I, I, I told you this before, but helping Lindsay get her hours into drive because she's got to get 50 hours of driving in. And early on in her driving, I would tell her that one of the best ways to stay on the road is not to look at the road right in front of the hood of the car, but to look way down the road and see, focus on the center of the road far ahead. Even when as it turns, just watch that spot. It'll keep you more steady than just looking at it right in front of you. And so many times in life, we always look at the immediate things. How will this affect me immediately? Instead of saying, where will this lead me down the road? Take the long look today. Folks, as we wrap up the story, as we move into the new year, as we wrap up 2023 and start a new year, at the end of 2024, when you look back on it, live with the, live with the idea that you want to end it by saying, I'm glad for the choices I made throughout the year. And not just today, I want to do this today. Now, what do I want to get in the next 52 weeks, in the next several years. Live with the end in mind, and by all means, take the long look. So we'll stop there today and jump into a whole new season of adventure in 2024.